Our next panel is the Honorable Tex Hall, who's the President of the National Congress of American Indians, Chief James Gray, who's the President of the Intertribal Monitoring Association and Co-Chairman of the Trust Reform and Cobell Settlement Work Group, Mr. Ernest L. Stensgar, who's the President of the Affiliated Tribes of Northwest Indians of Portland, Oregon, Mr. James T. Martin, the Executive Director of the United South and Eastern Tribes of Nashville, Tennessee, Ms. Eloise P. Cobell, the Blackfeet Reservation Development Fund of Browning, Montana. We'll begin um, with you, Chief Gray. Mr. Chairman, Vice Chairman, members of the committee, I'm here in my capacity as uh, Chairman of the Intertribal Monitoring Association and as Co-Chair of the Trust Reform and Cabell Settlement Work Group. I also serve as Principal Chief of the Osage Nation. The nation will provide its own separate testimony, uh, written testimony about as 1439 in light of our unique hybrid situation. Without objection, all written statements will be made part of the record. Thank you. Um, those of you who have worked to establish the principles of resolving uh, Cabell, reforming the broken federal trust systems, have strongly held convictions about solutions to this decades-old problem. We may come from different regions of the country, have varying trust resources, and have different stories to tell about the harm we have suffered but we all share the same critical and overriding objective, a meaningful settlement of the Cabell litigation that helps to do both undo the damage done and ensure that it doesn't happen again. There is no doubt in my mind that the chairman and vice chairman share the objective of justice for the past and certainty for the future. There, there can be no question that this bill represents the first and perhaps the only opportunity we will have to settle this case through discussions with the United States Congress, the entity that established the trust and which has preliminary but not unlimited authority to establish the terms of the trust. As tribal leaders, we have the responsibility to make the most of this extraordinary opportunity. This bill represents the committee's commitment to this objective as well. We must be successful in this effort, for if we are not, the growing rift between Indian tribes and the United States will become an entrenched gulf. Consequently, I'd like to note at the outset that one of the most positive aspects of this significant legislation is a simple fact that it, it has been introduced and by whom. I, for one, view the chairman and vice chairman's commitment to this effort as evidenced by the introduction of S. 1439 to be a very positive step and pledge to work with you in a frank, pragmatic, and reasonable manner to make this the best legislation it can be. You have both demonstrated true political courage and leadership in crafting the bill to address this bitterly controversial issue, and you deserve thanks and appreciation from all of us for this bold step. As to the bill you have introduced, I want to underscore in my testimony today the key element that we believe is right, and then close with a few thoughts of where we can go to improve the bill. Let me begin with the things that we believe is right in S-1439. First, in your bill, the funds for settlement do not come from programmatic funding of other federal activities. This is a very important element of the bill that is absolutely correct. Unquestionably, funds to settle the injustice against individual Indian money account holders cannot come from Indian programs. We believe the explicit reference in S-1439 to the judgment fund sends a clear message that there is no legitimate argument that the cost of this settlement should be charged or borne by any distinct part of the federal government or federal beneficiary. Second, 1439 takes clear and affirmative steps towards reducing and eliminating several of the primary causes of the mismanagement mess. In particular, the bill addresses two causes the fractionated ownership of allotted lands, and the absence of clear executive responsibility for federal trust activities. The fractionation component of the bill demonstrates your commitment to a comprehensive effort to put this sad history and allotment policy and its nefarious consequences behind us. The creation of an undersecretary position should result in the coordination of federal policies throughout the Department of Interior through the focus of the federal government's trust obligation. The recognition of this trust responsibility underscores the legitimacy of every interaction between the federal government and Indian tribes and their members. These and other provisions demonstrate that this bill is concerned with both settling the past and taking steps to fix the future. Third, the bill recognizes that a fair settlement for hundreds of thousands of individuals who have suffered for years or decades will need to be resolved with a payment involving billions of dollars. With a class of claimants that includes hundreds and thousands of individuals, 
a settlement of even hundreds of millions of dollars would amount to nothing more than a token payment for each individual. Your bill recognizes that such a token payment will be a constitutionally questionable act of confiscation, not the legitimate act of a trustee. Even if such a patently inadequate payment might be permissible, it would neither be fair or adequate to bring the crisis to an immediate resolution we must strive to achieve. There are a number of tribal leaders like myself who look forward to developing a legislative proposal that we can recommend to Indian country. As you have heard from others today, we are not yet at that point. But both the sponsor statements upon introduction clearly demonstrated that neither the chairman nor vice chairman assumed that this bill was intended to be anything more than a starting point. I look forward to our dialogue. In this dialogue, we must face each tough issue together. There will be likely to be many and resolve them pragmatically. But yes, but also in a manner mindful of the terrible injustice we are all committed to rectifying. Ultimately, we must succeed. No amount of effort or accomplishment in any other area in this committee's jurisdiction will make up for the cost of not achieving a settlement. So where do we go from here? First, we must begin with a dialogue with the sponsors and their staff to develop an understanding of whether certain provisions of S-1439 constitute mere placeholders, necessary components of settlement legislation, or concessions to the legislative environment. For example, there was a great deal of mistrust of both the Departments of the Interior and Treasury within Indian Country, allowing either department to exercise the scope of discretion that would be permitted under the current version of the bill could allow the very individuals who are the most antagonistic to the objectives of this process to control most or merely all of the elements of the distribution of a settlement fund. There may come a day when there is enough trust in Indian Country to structure the settlement in this fashion, but we are not at that point today. In fact, we are far from it. If there are reasons why a judicially managed distribution is presently perceived as either unworkable or unacceptable, we need an open dialogue to analyze and address those concerns. Similarly, we must develop together a model to determine how much to compensate the victims of this injustice. We greatly appreciate the sponsor's recognition that a settlement must be measured in the billions. We must now work on how to develop a rationale for a more specific number, in this process, we must bear in mind that an unsurmountable burden of accuracy measuring the precise amount of compensation is due completely to the federal government's mismanagement of its own records. In light of this, we believe that it may be worthwhile to work with committee staff to develop some models for calculating a fair and equitable settlement figure. One proposed model would calculate a compensation amount using an inputted error rate times account activity adjusted for interest and inflation. This, has, this idea has some genuine merit, and together we should explore its viability. There are a number of other issues that, that concerns ITMA members, which includes the LATs. We will provide you with a more detailed comments as to these in the near future. We have a meeting in Denver that's scheduled this week to address this area specifically. There is a great deal more to say and discuss. Some of these discussions will probably be somewhat heated, but we must remember that we are all working in good faith and to a common end. We represent a lot of people who have a lot of stake in this issue, but when tribal leaders get home, no one wants to know whether we won any arguments. They want to know if they will be compensated in their lifetimes for acknowledged injustices, whether their parents will get justice before they die. To the chairman and vice chairman, I thank you for giving them some hope that this will be the case. Thank you, and I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Honorable Texhall, welcome back. Thank you, uh, Chairman McCain, and good morning. Good morning, Senator Johnson and Vice Chairman Gordian, members of the committee. Uh, want to thank you for holding this hearing, uh, Chairman McCain, on this most critical issue in all of Indian country today. Uh, want to thank the Vice Chairman and members of the committee for their support and leadership on this issue. I'm honored to appear before the committee today to testify on the Indian Trust Reform Act of 2005. I want to start by expressing my appreciation to the committee on behalf of the 250 member tribes of the National Congress of American Indians for your commitment to Indian country and to the people of Indian, American Indians and to bedrock the principles of trust which underlie the entire relationship between our sovereign Indian nations and the federal government. NCI strongly shares the view of the committee that it's time for Congress to establish a fair and equitable process for settling the Cabell lawsuit. We can't wait any longer. 
We also stand with the Cabell plaintiffs in seeking a full and fair adjustment of the individual Indian money trust accounts. I want to point out that as tribal leaders that are seated in the audience today, we also have the responsibility to fight for the welfare of our individual tribal members who are for the most part IAM account holders. We are accountable to them as elected tribal leaders. And for that reason, as NCI president as a, and as a tribal chairman, I've invested months and directly used my authority to help build a national tribal initiative to resolve the Cabell case and reform the trust management system. This process resulted in the development of 50 trust principles that represent the views of Indian country I'd like to have submitted in the record, uh, Mr. Chairman. Without objection. Thank you very much. I understand this process in response to the challenge of the committee to unite Indian country behind a bill that is both fair and comprehensive. Let me say without reservation that I remain committed to that process. I wholeheartedly agree with, with you, Chairman, and the Vice Chairman that the bill as introduced is a starting point and a solid starting point for resolving the trust. But make no mistake, the bill needs to go further. There are major changes that need to be made in order to convince all of Indian country to rally behind the bill. I know that the committee is committed to working with Indian country, and I'm positive that together we can agree on the right changes to the bill. And as we do so, I can guarantee you that I'll be working day and night to help unite Indian country behind this bill. On trust standards, the lack of trust standards, independence, and enforceability are the most conspicuous omissions from the 50 principles we submitted. NCI believes that standards and accountability are the cornerstone tenets of meaningful trust reform. There simply must be an independent body with true oversight authority. Explicit trust standards and the cause of action in federal courts for a breach of those standards. The very absence of those provisions is why we have the Cabell lawsuit and all of the tribal trust lawsuits. Decades of trust reform efforts have borne little, if any, fruit. Why? Because the Department of Interior believes its job is to ensure the United States is never held liable for its failure to properly administer trust assets. And for this reason, DOI has always opposed the standards in trust reform. On the settlement in Title I, in our 50 trust principles, we set forth the, the rationale we used to justify a sum of $27.5 billion. We understand that, that you, Mr. Chairman, believe the settlement should be in the billions of dollars, as mentioned in the bill. But the bill before us does not specify a specific dollar amount. And in order for us as tribal leaders to convince Indian country and our members that whatever figure is settled on is fair, we need to be armed with a dollar amount and a credible rationale that we can explain to our tribal members. Without that, we will be hamstrung in our efforts. I believe that the $14 billion needed for a historical county is a starting point. That fact that the lump sum would come from the judgment fund so it would not come at the expense of any other Indian programs or an account is an example we can use to rally Indian country. Under Title II, the Indian Trust Asset Management Policy Review Commission, the NCI believes that this provision has the power to make a significant contribution to the ways our trust accounts are managed. We suggest that Congress should make all of the appointments rather than leave a significant uh, number up to the executive branch. Indian countries united at a commission must have teeth and the power to independently investigate the Department of Interior. In regards to Title III, NCI strongly applauds the creation of the Indian Trust Asset Management Project. As a, as a tribal chairman of my own reservation in the Great Plains, I support the creation of an area-wide demonstration project. I can assure you there will be a flood of tribes that will want to participate in this project and free them from the shackles of the governmental structure of the Office of Special Trustee. NCI recognizes that this provision is an affirm affirmation of tribal self-determination and sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, even for the tribes participating in this project, the bill does not go far enough. Not only should more tribes be allowed to participate, but tribes should be given the opportunity to establish clear trust standards. Furthermore, tribes should be able to immediately resolve disputes to the courts or a third party mediator, such as the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service, rather than have to exhaust through departmental appeals.
In regards to Title IV, the fractionation, NCI strongly supports the new incentives for voluntary sales of fractionated interest by allowing the Secretary to offer more than fair market value. On the other hand, the bill has a provision for highly fractionated lands of more than 200 owners, where if the Secretary follows certain procedures, including notice by certified mail, the offer would be deemed accepted unless it is affirmatively rejected by the owner. NCI understands the rationale behind this provision, but it seems grossly unfair to the landowners. And Mr. Chairman, as you know, there are 50,000 addresses that are unknown today in the system. One possibility is to work with the tribals, the tribes as enrollment offices in order to establish a direct communication with the IM account holders because the Tribal Enrollment Office has every account member's enrollment number and addresses. NCI strongly agrees that any payments Indians received under a land research, repurchase program should not be subject to state or federal income tax and should not affect their eligibility for Social Security and welfare. Under Title V, the restructuring of the BIA and Office of Special Trustee, the new Office of the Undersecretary meets a number of the goals in our trust principles including the elimination of the Office of Special Trustee. The creation of this position addresses a major issue that has been raised in every significant study of trust management at Interior, the lack of clear lines of authority within the department. NCI believes the bill should go further. Nearly every agency in the Department of Interior, not just MMS or BLM or USGS, has some significant trust responsibilities. At this time, there is no single executive within the Secretary's office who is permanently responsible for coordinating trust reform efforts across all of the relevant agencies. This absence has particularly hurt the progress of those issues that cut across agencies, such as the development of a system <coughs> architecture that integrates <coughs> trust fund accountings with the land and asset management systems of the BIA, BLM, and MMS, and as required by the 1994 Act. Furthermore, the BIA has never been provided with an adequate level of resources, staffing, and budgeting to fulfill its trust responsibilities to Indian country. This has been a chronic neglect, and this understaffing and underfunded has contributed to the dysfunctional management and financial systems at all levels of the BIA. NCI also believes that an independent entity, perhaps the GAO, should have the job of reviewing the, reviewing the federal budget for trust management and provide an assessment to Congress of its adequacy. I believe this role may be more important than ever today as the administration moves to assess federal budgets under the PART, the Program Assessment Rating Tool. And under Title V, the Audit of Indian Trust Funds, this section will require the Secretary of Interior to prepare financial statements for individual Indians, tribal, and other Indian trust accounts and prepare an internal control report. This section would also direct the Comptroller General of the United States to hire an independent auditor to conduct an audit of the Secretary's financial statements and report on the Secretary's internal controls. This title appears to meet the goals of our trust principles, and I believe that the details of the audit procedures can be redefined and improved after more discussion with tribal leadership. So in conclusion, Mr. Chairman, on behalf of NCI, I'd like to thank the members of the committee for all of their hard work and their staffs that have, that they have the time they have put into this bill and in the entire trust reform effort. And for the most part, I also want to recognize uh, Chief Jim Gray here as co-chairman of the National Indian Working Group. And together with NCI and ITMA and all the other tribal leaders that are here in our membership of the 250 tribes of NCAI, and the 50 tribes of ITMA comprising 300 Indian tribes. We will continue our work group to reach out to all tribes and all national and regional tribal organizations for as long as it takes. This bill is a good starting point. It's a solid starting point, but it needs to go further. We need resolution. We need to come together. We need to stay united. And I will continue as president of NCI to call on and to work with Indian Country and the committee here to come up with a bill that we can all support to provide a meaningful settlement 
important for our elders, especially for our elders who have died in poverty without receiving justice. In this time, justice comes to Indian people. They've waited too long. And so thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your continued support on this. We appreciate it. Chairman Hall, thank you very much. And Chief Gray, thank you as well. I know the two of you have worked, uh, spent a lot of time, travel, effort, uh, and uh, this committee appreciates that very much. Uh, next, we'll hear from Eloise Cobell. Ms. Cobell, you may proceed. Let me just also mention the chairman has gone to cast a vote on the first vote, and uh, we'll return uh, right after the second vote has started, and he will have cast a vote on that. You may proceed. Good morning, Vice Chairman Dorgan and members of the committee, and Mr. McCain. I'll tell him good morning when he gets returns. Um, and I'd like to thank you for inviting me here today to provide testimony to the committee on the possible legislative resolution of our nine-year-old lawsuit. Although we have our strong disagreements with your initial proposal as an appropriate way to resolve the case in a fair manner, we are all united in our end goal to achieve an equitable resolution to this century-old stain on this great nation's honor. I am here today on behalf of myself and the more than 500,000 individual Indian Trust beneficiaries represented in the lawsuit we filed in, this, in the federal court, Cabell versus Norton. I would also like to explain to you that the Blackfeet pray at the, base, uh, the, at the Baker Massacre on a yearly basis, and we pray that the federal government will never treat us like they treated us then. I also pray on a daily basis going to work on the Blackfeet Reservation at Ghost Ridge where 500, 500 Blackfeet died of starvation because the Indian agent withheld rations. And so I apologize to you if I hurt the committee's feelings when I explained what I felt about Senate Bill 1439, but that is the only way that I could express myself because I have to tell you that it's been a very dis difficult task on making the United States government accountable to individual Indian beneficiaries. I didn't want to be in a nine-year lawsuit. I think this could have been over very quickly if the United States government would admit it that they could not give an accounting to individual Indian beneficiaries. <clears throat> We are in the 10th year of this litigation, and more than a century of mismanagement of individual Indian trusts has already passed. Justice has been delayed for individual trust beneficiaries. Every individual trust beneficiary I have spoken with has told me that they want a fair resolution, even if it takes longer. They do not want to be sacrificed at the altar of a political expediency as they have so many times before. Since 1887, members of the class have been subjected to injustice after injustice, report after report for generations after generations have cited the rampant mismanagement and the malfeasant administration of the individual Indian trust. As you know, a congressional report from 1915 spoke about the scandals in terms of fraud corruption, and institutional incompetence almost beyond the possibility of comprehension. A 1989 investigative report of this committee found similar <coughs> fraud and corruption. The misplaced trust report from the House Committee on Government Oversight made similar findings of malfeasance. The Court of Appeals described the disastrous historic and a continuing management of individual Indian property as malfeasance, and in 2001 held the continuing delay was unconscionable. The Federal District Court Judge C. Lamberth, who has presided over this case for nearly a decade, approximately appropriately described the utter failure to reform the Interior Department and continue abuse of Indian beneficiaries in this way. The entire record in this case tells the dreary story of Interior's degenerate tenure as trustee delegate for the Indian Trust, a story shot through with bureaucratic blunders, flubs, goofs, and foul-ups, and peppered with scandal, deception, dirty tricks, 
and outright villainy, the end of which is nowhere in sight. By setting up the trust, the government promised to abide by common trust laws. It has failed even the most simple of these trustee duties. The government still cannot say how much money is in each beneficiary's account. Imagine the outrage if suddenly a major U.S. financial institution were to announce that it had no idea how much money were in each depositor's account. Imagine the congressional hearings, the class action lawsuits that would be filed as a result. Yet, that's exactly what has happened here. The courts have held that the government is in breach of its trust duties. They have held that interest and imputed yields are owed beneficiaries' class. They have held that the duty to account pre-existed the 1994 Trust Fund Reform Act and that the government has a duty to account for all funds. Time after time on major issue after major issue, the courts have made it clear that the law and the facts are on our side. I should point out that there are some aspects to the, of the proposed legislation that are positive. First, this hearing itself is a constructive step forward to educate Congress and the American people. Additionally, additionally the inclusion of a provision that calls for settlement amount to come from the Claims Judgment Fund to ensure victims are not punished also is an important positive component, as is recognition that the settlement amount is in billions. To be honest, I was deeply disappointed when I read Senate Bill 1439. It falls so short of being a good starting point to re resolving the Cabal case in an equitable manner. This bill in present form is drastically in favor of the government's malfeasors position. It is not faithful to the two important sources that offer considerable guidance to any legislative resolution effort. The 50 principles for settlement that Chief Gray and Mr. Tex Hall talked about and the numerous decisions rendered by the court in Cabell itself. We need your support to stand up for the many individual Indian beneficiaries who are relying on all of us to create a fair and equitable resolution. Like Mary Johnson, a Navajo grandmother who relies almost exclusively on a few dollars in her allotment to, to receive support for her family. She receives pennies of what a non-Indian is paid for gas from her land. Our Mary Fish, a 70-year-old Creek woman who cannot replace windows in her small home because she lacks the funds, yet there are five oil wells pumping constantly for decades on her land. There are so many more across every reservation, grandmothers and grandfathers and parents and children suffering from the same indignities of their forebearers. I am confident that if we work together, we can achieve our common objectives. There are many specific parts of Senate Bill 1439 that I believe I need to address. One of the most disturbing aspects of Senate Bill 1439 is the placing of the Secret Secretary of Treasury, a defendant in the Cabell lawsuit, and one of the parties principally responsible for the historic and continuing victimization of Indian trust beneficiaries as the person to be in charge of the settlement funds. The Treasury Department has been Interior's partner in crime for far too long. They have been found in breach of trust. They have failed to reform. The suggestion that any settlement fund be handled by such an entity is wholly unacceptable to the beneficiary class. <laughs> A second area of concern to all individual Indian trust beneficiaries is that under this legislation, the court would be eliminated from the picture entirely. That makes no sense for a number of reasons. Courts have the greatest institutional competence 
to make distributions in, fair, in a fair manner. They are often called upon to do just that. Courts are armed with Rule 23 and related case law that provides sound guidance in resolving difficult distribution issues. The court in Cabell has nine years of experience of living with the facts of this case. The knowledge developed through that process is invaluable and irreplaceable. We recognize that Senate Bill 1439 places the settlement amount approximately in the billions of dollars. That, of course, is only sensible since the government's own internal risk assessment by their contractors set the liability as between 10 and 40 billion dollars. In the 50 principles, the work group put forward a reasonable and well-founded aggregate settlement amount of 27.487 billion. This is not reparations, this is not damages, nor is it welfare. It is quite simply a return of a portion of the money that was and is, and is being taken from us. The amount was derived by reviewing our model for each year of total proceeds from the Indian allotted lands. The government's model of these proceeds is not far off from the plaintiffs an aggregate amount generated from these lands. For each year, plaintiffs calculate a percentage of the monies that were, for settlement purposes, properly collected, invested, and dispersed to the appropriate beneficiary. The disbursement percentages we have used is highly favorable to the government. Even though we have evidence that the government cannot account for even 1% of the transactions. The purpose of the calculation, we assumed that the government could account for 80%. Using this percentage, we calculated how much of a yearly aggregate proceeds defendants failed to distribute properly. This number, we add interest for a yearly calculation. We added this number together and then subtracted, again, a litigation delay a percentage-based calculation for the cost of continuing litigation. The result of this calculation is $27.487 billion. The number is further justified in my written testimony. Reform requires fundamental changes that must be made immediately in all other trusts. There are, among other things, clarify, clarity of the trust duties, clarity regarding the complete enforceability and the availability of meaningful remedies, independent oversight with substantial enforcement's authority to ensure that beneficiaries are protected. These core trust elements are not in the legislation and need to be. Congress must clarify that Indian beneficiaries will receive the same protection as all other non-Indian trust beneficiaries. <coughs> the importance of keeping the courts involved cannot be overemphasized. Only when we turned to the courts was any progress made to fix the trust and establish the individual Indian beneficiaries' rights to an accounting. The decades of experience by the federal courts in dealing with class action <coughs> cases must not be cast aside. It is essential to resolving this case and achieving accountability. Not only has the executive branch abused us and defied the courts, it has defied you. It has repeatedly refused to comply with legislation passed by this body. It must finally be called to account. I look forward to continuing our work together and to finally and conclusively put an end to the criminal administration <coughs> of our trust property. I thank you very much for this opportunity to testify. Ms. Coppell, thank you very much. Um, next, we will hear from President Stenskar. Thank you. Good morning, Vice Chairman Gergen, members of the committee. I appreciate the opportunity to present testimony that submitted written testimony and would like it included in the record. 
My name is Ernie Stensler. I'm president of the Affiliated Tribes of the, of the Northwest. I represent 54 tribes from Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Western Montana, California, and some of Alaska. Over the past several years, and after numerous court-issued declarations in the Cobell litigation, Affiliated realized that resolution of the litigation in the court system would take many years that a settlement of the litigation would probably not result in action that would compensate the plaintiffs along with individual Indian trust account holders to a level that would be fair and equitable. Therefore, AT&I, Affiliated Tribes of Northwest Indians, decided to focus on working cooperatively with Congress and other stakeholders in creating a legislative resolution of the Cobell litigation while at the same time accomplishing reorganization of the Department of Interior to fit the needs of Indian country. On April 6, 2005, Affiliated submitted Indian Trust Reform legislation to the Honorable Marie Cantwell to be considered on an expedited basis by the Senate Indian Affairs Committee. The legislation essentially asked Congress to provide several provisions for the settlement of the Cobell litigation and to accomplish trust reform. The first provision sought to elevate the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs to a Deputy Secretary. The intent of this provision was to ensure that the principal officer assigned to fulfill the trust responsibility would have the authority over the constituent agencies that have an effect or impact on the trust responsibility. Under S. 1439, Section 503, entitled Undersecretary for Indian Affairs, there is an Undersecretary for Indian Affairs position created that is direct, directly subordinate to the Secretary of Interior. Affiliated supports the creation of the Undersecretary for Indian Affairs position within the department, along with the duties requiring management and accountability of the trust responsibility in consultation with Indian tribes. AT&I also su supports Section 505 of the legislation, which would terminate the Office of the Special Trustee for American Indians by December 31st, 08. <clears throat> AT&I also sought the codification of the standards of the administration of trust duties that were adopted by Secretary Babbitt in 2000. AT&I understands that these standards have not been codified as a provision of the Act, but it does not believe that this will ultimately fa be fatal to the legislation. Under Section 503 of the Act, there is an Undersecretary for Indian Affairs that will be required to implement and account for the fulfillment of the trust responsibility to Indian tribes. The legislation also describes the duties that the Undersecretary for Indian Affairs will be required to fulfill under Section 503. AT&I asserts that if this section is holistically integrated with other provisions of the legislation, the Undersecretary has some guidance from Congress defining some actions and responsibilities that will be required to fulfill the trust responsibility. The specific trust standards can be finalized at a later date and in subsequent legislation. The third provision that affiliated sought was a settlement of the Cobell litigation by the authorization of a mediator that would submit recommendations to the court on settlement issues and allow the court the ability to implement the recommendations without having to submit to a drawn-out trial process. Affiliated has reviewed the Act and is in agreement with the Congressional findings contained within Section 101. AT&I realized that in many cases it is impossible for the federal government to provide a total historical accounting of funds held in IIM accounts due to any number of factors. Affiliated supports the proposition that the settlement of the Cobell litigation must provide a fair and appropriate calculation of the IIM accounts in lieu of actually performing an accounting of the IIM accounts. AT&I lends its support for the creation of an individual Indian accounting claim settlement fund contemplated in Section 103 so that there can be closure to the plaintiffs in the Cobell litigation and other aggrieved parties. The settlement amount will obviously need to be debated and agreed upon after intense consultation with all the affected parties. The animosity that has guided previous attempts at settlement should not deter actual and honest agreement over our final settlement amount. Affiliate supports the pro proposition that a special master should be appointed to administer the settlement fund. 
However, Section 103 allows the Secretary the unilateral ability to appoint a special master to administer the fund without allowing any tribal input in the determination of appointing the special master. Since the settlement fund is a result of litigation between two adversarial parties, there should be the ability of the representatives of both parties to come to agreement on the appointment of a special master to administer the settlement fund. AT&I is supportive of the, of the provisions in the legislation which recognizes the right of claimants to seek judicial review. However, provisions in sections 105, 106, and 107 are confusing and should be clarified to protect these important rights. AT&I supports the right of judicial review for claims relating to shared determinations in the United States District Court by the district in which a claimant resides. In this instance, the claim would not be considered a waiver by the claimant of the right to receive a share under Section 104. However, a claim relating to the method of valuation and a claim relating to the constitutionality of the application of this title to the claimant filed in the United States Court of Federal Claims would be considered a waiver by the claimant of any right to receive either the per capita share or the formula-based share under Section 104. Affiliated does not support the provisions that require a waiver by the claimant of any right to an award under Section 104 if the claimant files a claim seeking review. AT&I asserts its strong support for Section 110. In that section, tribal government claims against the United States would not be discharged as a part of the settlement of litigation claims identified in Section 102. <clears throat> the fourth provision sought by the AT&I was the creation of an independent legal authority that would have some oversight power over administration of the federal trust responsibility. Title II of the Act creates a commission known as the Indian Trust Asset Management Policy Review Commission that, we, that would be charged with the review of trust asset management laws and the review of the department's practices with regard to individual Indian and Indian trust assets. The commission would then have the ability to make recommendations to the secretary and to the committee for improvement over the department's laws, practices, and management of the trust assets. Affiliate supports the commission as created by Title II of the Act since it would allow for an independent review of the department's practices and would possibly lead to recommendations that would assist the department in adopting a best practices approach to fulfillment of the trust responsibility. Indian country has shown in the past that it is willing and able to participate in crafting recommendations that will lead to improved department as it continues to administer its trust duties. The fifth provision sought the establishment of a demonstration program project that would build on the work of those tribes that have been administering their own trust programs pursuant to authority granted by the Congress and the appropriations bills. Mr. Stenskar, I'm going to have to ask you to... Uh complete your testimony if you would. There's two minutes remaining on the vote on the floor of the Senate and I have to be there to vote. So if you'll just Certainly. finish in a sentence or two, uh, we'll okay. then recess for 10 minutes. I just want to say that, that the Northwest tribes stand ready to proceed in the process of adopting legislation and, and, and working with this, with this committee to further that. It's time that, that, that the tribes continue on with their other important work and we're at a standstill now. Stensgar, thank, thank you. you very much for your testimony. Mr. Martin, you will begin testifying when we convene. We expect the committee will be in recess for 10 minutes while we vote on the floor of the Senate. Again, I'd like to extend my apologies to the witnesses because of this. Uh, we have five consecutive votes in a row, and I apologize for the, any inconvenience this has caused them. I believe we are now at uh, Mr. Martin, is that correct? Yes, sir. Please proceed. Chairman McCain, uh, Vice Chairman Dorgan, and distinguished members of the Senate, <clears throat> my name is James T. Tim Martin. I am an enrolled member of the Porch Band of Creek Indians and Executive Director of United South and Eastern Tribes. On behalf of the 24 tribes of USET, we have closely followed the Cabell case over the last 10 years and the Department of Interior's subsequent reorganizations. Along with President George, I represented the tribes of the Eastern Region Office in the DOI Tribal Task Force and have testified before this committee several times on trust reorganization. 
I thank this committee for the opportunity to testify on this issue again. For USAC tribes to compel litigation and the Department of Interior's redirecting of funds to trust activities carried out by the Office of the Special Trustee has had an immediate and harmful impact. For fiscal year 05 and 06, funding for the BIA has reduced full-time staff for law enforcement, education, and other vital programs. The Cabell litigation and the DOI's interpretation of the requirements to meet court orders have absorbed resources and limited the ability to implement already underfunded programs. I thank the Senator, Kent McCain and Dorgan, for introducing S-1439, which represents a critical step for trust reform and provides a solid footing for resolving the interrelated and complex problems of trust reform. Given the complexity of the trust-related issue, one piece of legislation is unlikely to solve all of the problems. This bill, however, takes on the challenge of addressing the fundamental issues of the settlement of the Cabell lawsuit, land consolidation, and prospective trust reform reorganization. You said, in response to Senator McCain's call for legislative solutions to this crisis, developed proposed trust reform legislation in April and provided that proposal to the chairman and to committee staff. The USEP proposal uh, legislation is in, intended to introduce measures that would increase the accountability and efficiency of DOI's administering of the United States trust responsibility while enhancing self-determination. Upon review of S-1439, it appears that the committee shares USEP's concerns and provide similar approaches to resolving them. Additionally, USET requests that the committee further deliberate several critical issues. I am attaching USET's proposed legislation to my written testimony and request that this proposal be included in the hearing record as it may be useful to the committee as it seeks to finalize trust reform legislation. But first, I would like to commend the committee for the recognition and incorporation of key components for trust reform and DOI reorganization. Specifically, let me mention a few of these here. Elevation of Assistant Secretary in Affairs to the position of Undersecretary and eliminating the OST, which the tribes have advocated for for a long time, would improve coordination of trust activities within the DOI and establish decision-making authority and accountability one-to-one executive authority. USAID views the commission established by Title II of S-1439 as a logical extension of the DOI Tribal Task Force. This commission is needed to conduct a thorough analytical review of laws and practices in order to make valuable uh, recommendations for future legislative actions for trust reform. With regard to land consolidation, S-1439 responds to tribal trust reform work group recommendations to expand the voluntary buyback of highly fractionated shares by providing the by sums greater than fair market value shares. USAID suggests, however, that the problem of locating whereabouts unknown individuals for purposes of land consolidation is a matter that should be addressed by this legislation or by the commission created by Title II of S-1439. S-1439 with this Tribal Trust Assets Management Demonstration Project, Title III, embraces a view strongly held by the USAID tribes that self-determination works. USAID is confident that management of trust functions will benefit from this demonstration project. Moreover, we expect it will foster an array of best practices to be utilized for the wide range of trust resources managed in Indian country. While the legislation does not accept codify tribal standards, USAID recognizes that S-1439 provides for a commission to issue recommendations on proposed Indian Trust Management Standards, Section 2043C, and that the demonstration project provides for the development of trust asset management plans that meet trust standards as established by tribal law and consistent with trust responsibilities of the United States. USAID recognizes the necessity of standards, yet acknowledges those standards must be developed in a manner that allows for flexibility, reflecting the diversity that exists among tribes, as well as the diversity 
that exist among the resources that both exist in tribes and resources, but to which the Secretary has a trust responsibility. Title I of S. Uh, 1439 would resolve the complex and prolonged and costly Cabell litigation. The terms of the bill demonstrates the committee's understanding of many of the issues and considerations involved in this large class action lawsuit. Title I addresses such matters as the distribution of the settlement funds and offers mechanism for judicial review for that distribution including the filing of claims to challenge the share distribution, to challenge the validation of the claim, and to challenge the constitutionality of the application of the title to an individual claimant. USAID has encouraged a, encourages a fair and complete resolution to that litigation and understand the committee will hold additional hearings to consider views of the Cabell plaintiffs. You said urges the parties to distribute to engage the proposed legislation in the spirit of compromise and the recognition of the unique opportunity this legislation offers. You said appreciation that tribal claims are preserved in Section 110D. You said also endorses Indian preference in hiring by the Undersecretary and the offices under the Undersecretary by Section 506. You said highlights these provisions as those which are directly respondent to the concerns and approaches that USET, tribes, and other tribal organizations have identified as critical to trust reform legislation. USET urges the committee to give additional uh, consideration to several other uh, considerations. First among them is for independent accountability. While the independent external audit provisions contained in Title Six of S1439 establishes a sound approach for accounting or auditing. USEP believes the DOI's management of non-monetary trust assets needs similar independent review. Additionally, the beneficiaries need a point of regress to report fraud and abuse in the daily-to-day -day implementation of the government's fiduciary trust responsibility. USEP's proposal would create an assistant inspector general for Indian trust to carry out investigations and audit responsibilities. We urge the committee to give great attention to the need for this mechanism that can police the DOI's compliance reform contained in S1439. Second is the ineffectively and duplication that has been created by the DOI's stovepiping its lines of accountability and decision-making authority between trust and non-trust functions. We believe this is a critical issue that the trust reform legislation and the commission created by Title II of Estimate must address. Finally, all of the reform in the world cannot get the job done without adequate funding. The number of vacancies and underfunding, understaffing in the DRI has contributed to the problem. As the committee has recognized with S1439, Trust reform requires tribally driven, flexible mechanism that reflects the diversity of tribes and the di distinct types and quantities of resources that exist. Moreover, in order for trust reform to advance, the Cabell litiga litigation must be resolved. We stand ready to work with this committee to further this legislation and other legislation that is needed to bring this issue to res <coughs> resolution. I thank the committee and we look forward to answering any of your questions, sir.